is these last, this last parable that we just read, Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. Dear congregation, we have been invited to the most special feast that there, that there is in this world, a feast of God's preparing, a feast of God's providing. It's a feast of grace. God, as that great king, invites to this feast all of us. It's pictured in the Lord's Supper. But it's not confined to the Lord's Supper. At the Lord's Supper, God's people may feed at that feast. But it's not confined to the Lord's Supper in terms of what this feast is. And that's why, why while the Lord's Supper may be over, this call to this feast may sound yet this afternoon. Sound to little children. Sound to older ones. Sound to members. Sound to visitors. Sound to whoever would be listening in, in whatever form. It comes to us all. In this parable, we are called to the marriage feast. And this, this afternoon, we will simply listen to this parable, and then we will hear the message, several aspects of the message of this parable, having heard and having had this parable in our minds. The parable begins with a king, a great king. And then already we know that this is something very important because a king was an important person. And so if a king does something, then it must be important. And this king has a very special occasion coming up. He has a, the wedding of his son. His son is to be married. And what do you do when there is a wedding coming up? You prepare for that wedding. And if you are a king, you want to prepare an, a, a lavish wedding ceremony, every wedding special, even if it's held in a very simple way. But a king wants a wedding fit for a king. And so he prepares. He plans. He arranges for all the foods and everything that's special that could happen at a feast. He must show his generosity. He must show his greatness in this feast for the wedding of his son. And of course, what is a feast without guests? It is no feast, it's just food on a table. And so he also still thinks of guests, and he has a list of guests who he will invite to his feast. And he sends out his messengers. In those days, they didn't put it in the mail in a letter and you open it and you get an invitation. No, he sends out those messengers and they go to this home and they say, you were invited to the marriage supper, the marriage feast of the king's son. They go to another home 
to another home and to another home. And he, he lets them know, these servants let them know that they are invited to this feast. Now just imagine if you had that messenger come to your home and you heard that you were invited, you would think how special. But we read, don't we, that they, verse 3, would not come. They were not willing to come. We don't read why. There could have been a hundred different stories and a hundred different excuses. And maybe the one looked at his wife and said, don't we have something that day that would be a convenient reason not to go? But at the end, they did not want to come. What do you do when you have a feast? And they don't want to come. Well, the king still sends forth his messengers later on. Now that the day of the feast has arrived, then the king would send out his messengers and he would, he would gather the guests and bring them to the feast. But when these messengers come and they come into the door and they say, the day of the feast has arrived, arrived. come with us, come to the feast, come to, to honor the king and to, to celebrate what is taking place. We read once again that they make light of it. These servants were even to give them a very specific message. I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. He, he seeks to allure them, to attract them, to draw them by speaking of the lavishness of the feast. There's, there's, a, there's an abundance here and it's all prepared and it's just waiting for you to enjoy. Here it is. Come to the marriage. But they make light of it. And they go their way. To make light of it means, children, to, to act as if it doesn't matter. As if you don't care about that invitation. You treat it as worthless. You just ignore it. And that's what they do. Some of them, they just, they hear it, they ignore it, and they go to, the one goes to his farm, and the other goes to his shop, and they carry on with the day. They had their things to do for that day. And if the king comes and says, go to the feast, they say, no, thank you. We just carry on with the things we had planned um, for the day. We also read of others, don't we? that they are even more active. They respond vigorously. They don't just set it aside, make light of it, ignore it. No, they respond to it, and they respond in enmity. They don't want this invitation, and they're upset with these messengers. And you notice it. The messenger comes into that, onto that farm, and he sees that farmer, and the farmer comes out in his work clothes. He's not at all ready for a feast. And that farmer grabs him, and that farmer beats him. And you think, that's unthinkable. Who would ever do that to messengers inviting you to a feast? 
And yet that's what happens. It says they were beaten and they were entreated spitefully. They were misused. They were abused. And even some of them were slain there on the street. Is one of the servants dead? You think, how can that be? And yet that's what happened. That's how much these ones did not want to come to the feast. They'd rather slay the messenger than listen to them. The servants come back. There they come, back to the king. Where are the people? They're not here. We invited them. We called them. But they didn't come. Why are you bleeding? One of the guests beat me up. There's the king. He had prepared the feast. No one wanted to come. The feast to the honor of his son. And it's empty. Because they did not want to, because they rejected. Is it any wonder that the king was wroth, it says. The king was angry. Angry at these ones who so dishonored him. Such ingratitude, such enmity, such rebellion against him as a king. No, he cannot tolerate that. He can't say, well, then, if they don't want to come, that's fine. Let them go to their field and let them go to their shop and let them go to their merchandise. That's okay. Each one does his own thing. No, this is an insult to the king and to the glory of the king. He cannot stand it. And that's why he's filled with just anger against these ones. And he sends forth his troops into the village that had rejected him. And they destroy it and they burn it down. And they bring judgment upon these ones who had rejected him. But the feast is still empty. No one is there. Can that be? Can the king prepare a feast and there's no one to be there? No one to enjoy it. No one to honor the king. No one in whom he may honor himself. He calls his servants to go, in verse 9, into the highways. And as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. There's no more specific addresses. Go here and not there. He says, whoever you find, anyone that crosses your path in the highways, those cities are destroyed, but there's the highways, there's the roads in, in the surrounding area. He says, go there, find anyone. And invite them and call them and bring them into the feast. Whoever it is. There's no addresses. There's not even certain descriptions. Bring the rich people. Because they fit in a feast of a king. Bring the, the ones between the age of 30 and 50. Because those are the ones I want. Bring no, there's no description of them. Whoever you find, younger ones, older ones, rich ones, they're invited. The poor beggar that's sitting beside the road, he's invited too. 
and the person that's blind and the person that's lame and the person that they're all invited, whoever they are, they may all come, come to the feast. And so those servants go out, don't they? And they bid the people to the marriage. And they gather together. It's a, it's, a, it's a powerful expression, isn't it? They gather together all, as many as they found, verse 10, both bad and good. Both bad and good is to say all distinctions fell away. There wasn't a good category. They invited a bad category. They not invited. No, whoever they were, no distinctions were made. All were invited, and they gathered the bad and the good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. Beautiful. There's all the guests in this great hall. And the food is there. And it's all ready. What's waiting? Just for the king to come. Because he must be there. And as he comes, he looks around. And the word has a sense of he, he looks carefully around. As he looks around... We're not, we're, he must have seen many people, but the Lord Jesus draws attention to just, just one person he sees. He looks at that person, and he addresses him in a friendly way, and he says, Friend, how did you come here not having a wedding garment? Friend. How can you be here in this way? And that person had nothing to say. He had no explanation. He had no excuse. He didn't say, well, I'm poor and this is the best that I could do. Or I was told to come in a hurry and, and I, I didn't know. He had no excuse for not having this wedding garment on. And he was guilty of not having it on. That's why this king, he said, bind him and cast him out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What a dreadful sight because this king would not be mocked. He sends out th this one who had come so close into outer darkness, bound hand and foot, powerless to resist, to escape, thrown into that outer darkness where he would not be silent any longer, but he would cry out, wailing and gnashing his teeth in pain. This is the parable that the Lord Jesus tells us. It's a parable that children you've heard before, you know, and you could follow along as we tell the parable. But what does that parable mean? What is Christ saying to us? This parable comes right after those other two parables. The first one being in Matthew 21, verse 28 through 30. The, the Jews had asked, by what authority doest thou these things? And then he asked them about the baptism of John. By what authority was that? And they didn't want to answer. And then he tells that story about the two sons. The father said, go work in my vineyard. And the first one said, I will. But he didn't. And he said to the other, go and work 
Actually, the other way around. The first one, he said, said, I will not. And later, he found him working. And the other one, second one, said, I will. But later, when he came, he wasn't working. And then the point of that was that the publicans and harlots and sinners repented at the baptism of John. First, they had said in their lives, no, we will not serve, but they repented and they were there. Whereas others had said, we serve God, but they were not in reality. And that second parable, it becomes a stronger, doesn't it? In verses 33 through 41 of chapter 21, when it speaks about the householder who planted a vineyard and gave it to his husbandman to care for it as he went into a far country. And then he sent messengers asking for the fruit and they didn't give any fruit. Instead, they hurt them. And finally, he sent his son. And they, he said, they will reverence my son. But instead, they killed him. And then he came and he destroyed them. And he gave that vineyard to others. And there he was. They, the Jews themselves realized he was speaking against them that they were those wicked householders. They were the ones who had failed to to honor God and to listen to his messengers and bring forth fruit. They had been fruitless and they had re were rejecting the very son of God and would be destroyed. The parable before us builds on this theme of judgment on these unbelieving Jews and especially their leaders who are rejecting Christ and how he will indeed bring destruction and judgment but he will yet gather, even after Jerusalem is destroyed, he will yet gather, gather into his feast. From the Jews and from the Gentiles, he will still continue his work of gathering into his church. It's clear that the king is God, God the Father, the king's son, is the Lord Jesus. And God has sent messengers already in the Old Testament, hasn't he? And prophets culminating in John the Baptist. But during the ministry of the Lord Jesus, the Jews were as a whole rejecting the Lord Jesus and soon their city would be destroyed. But God would continue gathering sinners into his church. And that's why now he sends the gospel to whoever would hear, whoever hears, whoever has ears to hear, to come. And that brings us to four things that form the message of this parable to us this afternoon. And the first is simply this. Be certain that the king calls you to his marriage feast. Be certain that the king calls you to his marriage feast. And what a feast that is. What a feast. It's the feast of his kingdom. And there's nothing richer than his kingdom and the riches that fill his kingdom. It's the feast of the grace and the glory that fills his kingdom. 
That's why Psalm 65 calls, uh, speaks about the abundant goodness of God's house. It's a feast to feed on, to be satisfied with, to delight in. It's a feast that, again, I say, is not limited to the Lord's Supper, but it was certainly set forth in the Lord's Supper this morning, wasn't it? Or did you taste something of that feast this morning? You think of the abundance that's there, the grace to pardon all your sin for the sake of the blood of Jesus Christ. The grace that reconciles to God as that great king to have peace with God through his blood. The grace that humbles and that convicts of the sinfulness of sin before such a suffering and glorious, now glorious Savior. The feast of grace that enlivens spiritual life that gives the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy and peace and all the other aspects of that fruit, the, the grace that gives spirit strength in the midst of trials and hope in the midst of troubles and endurance in the midst of all the assaults there can be, that feast of grace that gives a foretaste of that eternal marriage supper of the Lamb. This feast is a feast because Christ is not only the host, but he's the very food of this feast. It's all Christ. The Lord's Supper shows that in his kingdom he feeds with himself. He's the feast. But still this afternoon in this gospel, there is feast, food for any hungry soul here. There is refreshing for any weary person here. There is joy for the downcast. There is life for even the dead. There's a feast. All God's doing. That's the emphasis here, isn't it? He has provided. It's not a potluck. We had a delicious potluck just now. You bring your own food and you share among yourselves and you, you enjoy that. This is no potluck. This is a feast, all of the Lord's providing. He doesn't ask you to come with anything. Nothing. Because he has secured all salvation. He's provided it in Jesus Christ. And he supplies out of that fullness of grace, grace for grace. It's his providing. It's his to be giving. He says, all things are ready. And he sends his messengers. He sends his preachers in the first place. But he also sends whoever echoes that gospel message to you. He sends them to you, saying, come to the marriage. Last week, we paid attention to self-examination. You were to examine yourself. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of this bread and drink of this cup. Because the call to the Lord's Supper, as, as was said this morning when the table was fenced, is, is not a reformed version of the altar call. Just come forward, receive the Lord's Supper, and you're saved. 
No, it's, it's to feed that spiritual life that is there. It's a family meal of those who are, who are adopted in the family of God. And so you have to examine yourself. But this gospel call to this gospel feast, you don't have to examine to yourself to see whether you qualify, to see whether you have certain marks which would enable you to come. No, it's a feast and the call goes out to whoever this gospel finds. And that's you. The gospel has found you found you here. God has brought you under the gospel, and he calls with that gospel every one of us, none excluded. Even if you're three or four years old and you don't understand everything, why are you here? It's because God is calling you to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, suffer the little children to come unto me. Let them come to me. Forbid them not. Of such is the kingdom of heaven. He calls everyone. He calls ones who have long lived in impenitence, hardness of heart. He says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. He calls to himself. Time and again, come to the marriage. The Lord's supper table is gone, but this feast of grace is still there. And it is there with that call for every one of us to come. No one is excluded. Now you can sometimes get mail in, the, in your mailbox and you look at it and you say, oh, that's the wrong name on it. It's in my mailbox, but it's not meant for me. And you, if it's just junk mail, you put it in the, in the garbage, and otherwise you bring it back to the post office. This is not for me. But when this call comes, no one can say he doesn't mean me. He says, come to the marriage. Do you not see what a great mercy it is that God thinks to call you to this feast. Has that become something amazing to you? That you may hear the gospel call. You, in all your sin, deserving to be cast away, God comes to you and he calls you. Come to me. What have you done to deserve that? Why are there others who have never heard the gospel call and you have? Why is it that others have heard the gospel call years ago and they've hardened themselves and they've gone their own way and they no longer come under the proclamation of the gospel and God keeps you here? It's because God has no pleasure in the death of any one of us that we heed that call. It's a call. It demands a response. This is not like a polite wedding invitation that says the favor of your reply is requested. And if you don't reply, then, then that's how it is. No, it's a call. It's a command. Come to the marriage. Do you not see what is in his heart? And that is mercy. 
and that is grace, and that is love that is in his heart. He even said in Isaiah 65, I've spread my hands all the day unto a rebellious people, welcoming them, calling them to come, come to him. The canons of Dort, they put it this way, as many as are called by the gospel are unfeignedly called. For God hath most earnestly and truly declared in his word what will be acceptable to him, namely that all who are called should comply with the invitation. And he seriously promises eternal life and rest to as many as shall come to him and believe on him. It says there's a feast. It's a feast so rich, so full, whoever you are, come to the marriage. And he means what he says. So that first message of this parable is that God calls us to the marriage feast of his son, Jesus Christ. But the second message that is brought in this parable is to beware of disregarding the king's call. And we see this done in several ways, don't we? We see it done, first of all, just by making light of it in verse 5. Treating this gospel call as if it were just words and not the voice of the living God to you. You just take what you hear in the preaching for information and you continue on with your normal, regular life. Coming to church has a place in your weekly routine, but you go home from church, and maybe some try to talk about the sermon, and, but it doesn't mean anything to you. Maybe as a young person, you, you tell your parents, I'm going to go to bed early, and there you go, and you go to your room to occupy yourself with other things rather than this gospel call. And Monday comes, and you're busy with your schoolwork, and you're busy with your work, and you're busy with your friends, and you're busy with many things, and that gospel call is all but forgotten. You make light of this gospel call, which cost the blood of Christ to be able to call you. You make light of that gospel because you make light of Christ and you despise Christ and you think your friends are more important and you think your whatever you make at your job is more important and you think other things are more important and you go through your life despising this Christ. And that's why you can make light of this gospel call. It's also because you make light of the warnings of God, warnings about the reality of your sin and the reality of the judgment of God. You make light of it all. And that's why you don't think you so need a gospel of a savior. What's your problem? That you're unwilling that's what the Lord Jesus highlights here. They would not come. They were not willing to come. You're not willing. Because you just want to do other things. And you want to live your own life. 
Maybe you're not wallowing in sin. Maybe you're not one of those who are just outwardly rebellious and partying. But you just want to do your own thing. We don't read of these people going off to sinful places. They just go to their merchandise, they go to their farm, and they continue on in life. Your will spent away from this Christ. Beware of doing so, because you're in such great danger then of doing, of despising this call in the Christ himself was the content of this call. That disregarding the king's call comes out the stronger in this second group who hurt and even killed the messengers, the servants of the king. And here we may think, well, that has nothing to do with us because we're not pastor murderers. We haven't killed pastors. Be thankful to God you haven't. When you hear that gospel, when you hear the word of God, does it stir up a, a resistance? Does it stir up a secret clenching of your fist that you actually are, are bothered by it and it aggravates you and it troubles you and you don't want to hear it and you'd rather shut out the noise of that gospel? that there's this active resistance to the gospel that comes to you. I don't know what's worse, to just make light of it as if it's, it's of no value or to be actively resisting it. Because if you're actively resisting it, it's because you sense something of the claims of that gospel and that God is calling for you. God is calling for your heart. God is calling for your life. God is calling to repentance. God is calling to faith. And that call is meeting your corrupt heart, which is going against that call. And that's why you're trying to push that call away and trying to silence that call. But if there's anyone here that's trying to do so, do you not realize that you are fighting a losing battle? You cannot fight against this king. You cannot resist the message of this king and prosper. It's utter folly. You never will. They resist openly, visibly. And that same resistance can be there in the heart of someone here. That there's just that resistance to this call that fills your heart when you hear it. But beware of living in such a condition. There's also a third way we find here, and that's by hypocrisy presumption. You see this man who, who is there in the crowd. He's with the other guests who have been invited. He's heard that call, and he thinks he's, he's heeded that call, and he's done what the king has wanted. And so he's there together with all the others. What more could the king want? The king said, whoever, everyone was welcome, and so he's there. And yet, he doesn't have this wedding garment. What does that show us? We can go through the motions. We're called to church and we come to church 
Ezekiel 33 speaks of those who say, come, let's hear the word of God. And they come before Ezekiel and they sit down before him and they even show love with their words. And yet Ezekiel says, but you don't do the things that I've commanded. You're a hearer, but not a doer. We can come to church regularly. We can even be a baptized member of the church. In that sense, we can be what the Lord Jesus calls elsewhere, the children of the kingdom. We aren't in the highways and the byways of this world. We are right here by the feast. We are here in the house where the feast is. We can even be a communicant member. Someone who comes to the very table of the Lord and receives that bread and receives that wine and everyone else thinks it's all fine with that person. So close, so close to the kingdom of God. Taking the, the visible signs and seals of it and yet not having a wedding garment. What is that? Clearly, it must be something the king provides. Because if this wedding garment was simply an expensive garment that the, the people were to come with, then a whole lot of people would have been excluded from that invitation. Then he would have said only those who, who have the, these beautiful clothes that are clean and fitting for a royal wedding, they may come. But there's no no qualification, all are invited. So this wedding garment must be something that the king himself provides to whoever comes and has, has for them. And that this is what makes them true and rightfully present there in the feast of the king. And when we think of that spiritually, do we not think of those white robes which are which clothed every true member of Christ. Our, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, Isaiah says. But those in the kingdom of God have washed them and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. To echo Revelation 7, entrance into the kingdom of God is through the cleansing power of the blood of Christ. It's not just natural birth. It's not just joining a church. And as long as the elders say you're okay, then you're okay. No, it's only through the blood of Christ that there's entrance into this kingdom of God in a saving way. And when we enter the kingdom in this way, cleansed by the blood of Christ, then we receive that white raiment. And we also have that desire to love him, to serve him, to walk in holiness as he is holy. To be in the kingdom, to be blessed by the king, we must have this white raiment. And the evidence of being a true citizen of the kingdom is to bring forth those fruits of righteousness, cleansed by the blood, acceptable by God. Isn't that also the point of the previous parable about bringing forth fruit? All this to say, we can be in church 
and on one level seem to be at home in church and yet not have this wedding garment. And if that's your condition, living in presumption, trusting something other than Christ alone, living in hypocrisy, that others think well of you, but deep down there's not this change of heart. And the Lord Jesus asks, how did you come here? Not having a wedding garment. Then you're in as much danger as the ones who were there in their opposition and slaying the servants of the king. Because the end of both of these groups is the same. That's why our third aspect here is to be warned of the king's wrath. Whether you just ignore the gospel call in indifference, or you militate against the king's call in enmity, or you mix with the people of God in presumption or hypocrisy, this parable warns, doesn't it? Seriously warns at the end of this parable. What is the end of all those who didn't come to the marriage supper of this son? Their city was destroyed. They were destroyed under the wrath of this king. God the Father loves his son with an infinite love, and he is most angered by him being mistreated, mistreated by you who do not want to come to him, you who want to live your own life, you who resist him, or you who just camouflage it all and look nice to others, but your heart is not in it. God is grieved. God is filled with anger. God will not stand it. And God will certainly not let such be at the marriage feast of the, la the Lamb one day. And that's why he warns of his wrath in this passage. He warns young and old of this great danger. What happened to that man who had to admit he had no wedding garment? He was addressed so familiarly, friend. Yet was cast out into darkness, literally darkness outside, outside the feast, outside the presence of the king, outside that place of light and joy and bliss, outside in the darkness, in the darkness where every gift of God is withdrawn because light is the most elemental gift. In the realm of darkness, under the judgment of God, darkness, where there's only wailing and gnashing of teeth. My friend, the Christ who entered into that darkness, who endured that hellish agony, who bore that wrath of God, knows what that darkness is, knows what that agony is. And as one who knows what that agony is, he warns. If you are outside of Christ, that's where you're heading this afternoon. And if God were to cut your life off today, that's where you would be, whoever you are. And there are people who were once under a preaching like you were under week by week, 
who are now in that outer darkness. And they would, what would they give for just, maybe I'm being too hypothetical, but what would they give for just one more time to be in church like you are today? But it's too late. This parable comes with a serious warning to those who neglect this great salvation and disregard this gospel call and go on with their lives. My friend, the end is outer darkness of such a life. However, you may be able to think that you're managing now. You will not. And this feast is so full of grace. And Christ comes and he offers it all to those who have no money, who have nothing to do to earn it, who don't even know how to give it to themselves. He says, come, I'll give it all, everything. Oh, there's grace in Christ. For ones who have been making light of Christ, there's grace in Christ. For ones who have been fighting against him, there's grace in Christ. For ones who have been living the lie in hypocrisy or in presumption, there's grace in Christ for all such people. That you'd confess it and that you'd turn to him and say, O oh, blessed Savior, I can't live any longer without thee. Have mercy upon me. There's grace in him who here this, e this afternoon says there is, because you look back, you say, I was someone like that before. I was once making light of the gospel. I thought I knew it, but all the while I was neglecting it. Or maybe you look back and you say, there was a time when I was so fighting against it. Now others of us may look back and say, there's a time when I thought I was a Christian and I didn't have to worry. But I thank God he opened my eyes to see what I was missing and to bring me in repentance to Jesus Christ. What a mercy if God has done so. Why has God done so? Why has he let the gospel have such effect in your heart and in your life that he drew you to that marriage feast through that gospel call? Why is it that also this morning you could taste of that gospel, you could taste of that grace, you could taste of that love of God in Jesus Christ? Why is that? It's not because of anything in you. The end of this parable, the Lord Jesus traces it to one thing. Many are called, but few are chosen. It's not because you chose him. It's because he chose you, that you are in the marriage feast, that you have that wedding garment. It's because he chose you, and he chose you because he loved you, and he loved you because he loved you, and there's no other reason why. That's how great this Christ is. My friend, if that's you, let that fill you with amazement. Why were there others who were hearing that same gospel and are now who knows where? And why has God blessed it? It's only his sovereign grace. And how you may thank God for that. And it's exactly that knowledge that it's all of grace that enables you and emboldens you to proclaim that gospel to others and call others to this Christ. And you can speak to your children and you could say, come to the Lord Jesus, because you know what a grace there is in him for sinners like you 
and it can also be for them, for your siblings, for your parents, for your relatives, for those around you. You can then call them to this wedding feast because you know he uses that very call to gather sinners in. And my friend, if you are still here and you hear at the end of this passage that it says many are called and few are chosen, don't turn this whole parable around and don't think I first must know that I'm chosen and then I can know that he's calling me. No, all are called and it's only in the way of coming that you will ever know that you were chosen. And so hear that gospel call whoever you are and whatever your past is and whatever you've gone through and however hopeless it is for you and whatever deadness and whatever guilt and whatever sin and whatever foolishness and whatever it may be, he says, come unto me to the marriage feast because I supply everything. Amen. O Lord God, we pray to thee, for thou art the true and living God who speaks and the God who calls, calls to thyself to come to thee in repentance, turning from our own evil ways and turning unto thee in faith looking unto the Lord Jesus Christ to receive all from him, all that feast of grace, to be clothed in that white robe, to have that ISAF, to have those riches, and to belong to him, and belonging to him, to feast on his grace here already and forevermore. O Lord God, we give thee thanks that thou dost choose sinners for no reason in them and bring them into thy wedding feast, into thy kingdom. And we pray, Lord, to continue to bless thy gospel call among us all. We pray that those who have been neglecting it or presuming upon it would be able to do so no longer, realizing to live apart from thee is death, is only the wrath of God in outer darkness, but that in Christ is life. And to whom else shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. We pray to bless us further in this day, thy day, and to watch over us in the week that lies ahead of us. Keep us in thy care, Lord, and be our help and strength day by day. Receive our thanks for all that thou hast given in thy undeserved mercy this day. And hear us in mercy for Jesus' sake alone. Amen.